0: Tanatova everyone, Gumar When I was a student, I remember asking my rabbi, I don't I don't understand, I told him, these rabbis who were in congregation for decades I asked them, what do they talk about? Don't they run out of things to say to their congregation? And the rabbi told me it's quite the opposite, actually. The better, in fact, we know each other, the more there is to say. And people who are fortunate to serve in congregations for a long time know that there is ever more to talk about. So this year marks my 22nd year as the rabbi here. And I think that it is time that I tell you who I am in a way that you don't actually know and I didn't know until a little while ago. See, this past summer, my wife Lisa bought a 23andMe kit. As fate would have it, it never got used. And I was the one who opened it and reminiscent of the eight-year-old in me, I tried to gather enough spit to get into that little tube. (laughs) I send the tube off to their testing center, and I have to admit that when I dropped it off, I was overcome with a weird feeling. What if, I wondered, my genetic ancestors aren't what I think they are? What if I ended up coming from somewhere completely and totally removed of what I and who I believe that I am? Now, I have to tell you that my family name, Flansreich, is not only hard to pronounce, it's also hard to find people who are related to me. And for those who do have my family name, you can be guaranteed one thing that we all are in fact related. Years ago in Israel, my father's great uncle told me the story of our name, that in the late 17th century, early 18th century, German Jews were required, as were Polish Jews and other Jews, to adopt family names. Some people had names given to them. So you have names like gold, and Stein and Schneider, because that's what people did for a living. Other people were given names like Mendelssohn or Jesselson, which were given the names after their fathers, because Son in German means son of. In Polish the suffix Witz, as in Horowitz, Schmushkowitz, Pelkowitz, means the same thing. But some people bought their names. Apparently it was very she-she to buy your name, and my ancestors bought Flansreich. Now, knowing how hard it is to spell and pronounce, I only hope they didn't pay a lot for it. So the other day, my test results arrived, and there is no suspense. I am 99.7% Ashkenazic Jewish. They could have skipped the report and sent me a letter in Yiddish, and it would have been fine. And I got to thinking about this, what it means, to be not just emotionally and spiritually, but also genetically Jewish. I got to thinking about this unique fingerprint of generations and who I am. Now for the record, and you've heard me say this a million times if you've heard me say it once, the Jews Jews are not a race, we are a people. Which is to say that we are a people bound, not by genetics, but by faith and belief in history. This is why anyone can become a Jew so long as they choose to care and believe in what we care and believe in. But by the same token, I think there is no denying that due to centuries of persecution, seclusion, and religious commitment, that Jews develop their own genetic peculiarities. This is true for European Jews as it is true for Sephardic and other Middle Eastern Jews. And then I began to consider our time, this place that we live in, and I beg, began to consider the way we live and the way we think, the things we have and the things we want. In short, the reality of everything which is the world that we know and understand. And then, my 23 and report in my hand. I asked myself and now I'm asking you, who do you think are the most important people to have lived in the past century? Which is to ask, which people are so critically important that if they hadn't lived and accomplished their work that we would not be the people that we are? My answer would be two Europeans and it is no surprise that they are Jews. That they happen to be European is a fluke of time and chance. That they are Jews is critical because there could have been no way, no possibility that these two people could have done what they did have contemplated and given birth to their ideas if they had not been Jews. Both men managed and revealed a world hidden from the eye of the unseen. And what is Judaism if it is not the preposition that the unseen is more powerful than the seen? So who are they? Sigmund Freud and Albert Einstein. Freud, And please pay no attention to the fact that many of his initial theories were challenged and replaced in subsequent generations. But it was Freud who created and gave life to the reality of your emotional life. Yes, in prior thought, people knew about love and hate, of greed and fear. People understood that there was happiness and melancholy. But what people didn't see is that within each of our minds lies an entire world that storms with the unseen and unconscious forces that push and pull us in ways that we barely, if at all, understand. It was Freud who opened that door and forever changed human life in the world that you live in. So daily, you use words like conflicted and repressed and neurotic and obsessive to describe your life and your reality. And we give little thought, little thought to it. But try to imagine our lives, what it would be like if young Sigmund Freud had been seriously injured or killed when he went on that Shabbat afternoon walk with his grandfather, who was attacked in Freiburg, Germany. Think of how often we reach for the phone to call a therapist when there is a problem in the family, or a psychiatrist, when the turmoil is great. Now try to imagine if none of that existed. I know you can't. Freud forever altered the emotional landscape of human life. Einstein also lifted the veil on the workings of the unseen universe and changed how humans live. On a simple level, the iPhone, TV, and computer that you own would not exist if Einstein hadn't developed his photoelectric theory. This is the theory that won Einstein the Nobel Prize, not E equals MC squared, by the way. But his greatest work, his theory of relativity, would take more time. And it was in those years when he worked as a second-class patent clerk in Basel, Switzerland, sitting for hours in a windowless office, that Albert Einstein lived inside of his mind, imagining the invisible matrix of the universe. He saw that gravity was tied to mass, and then he looked deeper, and he saw the time was not something that we create. In other words, time didn't come into existence when the first person began to count the pattern of the sun in the sky, or the first sundial, or the first clock. Time, as Einstein said, as he peered into his mind, into the deepest reaches of the universe, time is a part of the physical world. It was created, he said, at the moment that everything else was, and as real as the ground that your feet are upon. Now most people think that life works on three settings. That there is the past, the present, and the future. Most people think that the past is the past and now is the present and tomorrow is the future. But Einstein told us that none of that is true. Most people think that time moves past us and once it's gone, it's gone. But that's not true either. So what did Albert Einstein see? Clara's story could have been written by him. Clara is today 93 years old and she lives in Tel Aviv. She is a survivor of the Shoah, and this is her story. In the beginning, she says, the Germans had velvet gloves. They were gentle to the Jews. But when the gloves came off, they revealed the hands of criminals. First, they took the children and the elderly. Then they took the men and the women. Their goal was annihilation. A year after her marriage, she and her husband were taken to a camp in Belgium. It was there that she was reunited with her father. Her mother and sister were already dead. They were loaded loaded onto a train that would take them to Germany, and then to Poland, and then to Auschwitz. It was this train that Clara, her husband, and her father were marked for as well. On the train, her father became deathly ill, and her husband told her, that they would have to jump from the train now, or they will die in Poland. And she was tormented. If she abandons her father, she could never live her life again. If she stays, she won't live. Finally, she turned to her husband and says, if I don't jump now, I won't ever be able to. She squeezed herself through the tiny window at the top of the cattle cart. And then she stood on the hitch between the two cars, and in a moment later, she threw herself into the darkness and left her father behind. In the fading shadows, a few moments later, she saw her husband approaching, and they hugged and cried as the train pulled away, knowing that her beloved father was alone and dying. She felt as though time had left her, and she was lost, having, de- having departed her father without a final word of love and she would be haunted by the guilt of leaving him there alone and dying. But the thing that Einstein discovered is that all of time is with us right now. It's all here, the past, the present, and the future. You only need the eyes to see it. The ancient Greeks taught that time is an ever-flowing river that once it's past, it's forever gone. But along comes this Jew named Einstein and he says, imagine time not as a flowing river, but as a frozen lake, that everything that has happened and will happen and is happening is all here. Imagine a place where there is no past and no future, but all of it is in your midst. And this is why when his beloved friend, Michel Besso died, Einstein eulogized him by saying, to those of us who understand, Michelle, this is not goodbye. I shall yet see you again. It is said at the time that Einstein lived that throughout the world, multiple people were making the very same discoveries, and the person who was awarded the patent was simply the person who got his paperwork in first. But they go on to say that no one would have ever discovered what Einstein did, that if he never lived, it would have never been thought of. He was that revolutionary. But it is no surprise that Einstein came from a Jewish family, that he had developed a strong religious feeling as a young boy, because the idea that there are no ends is repeated again in Jewish tradition. In the words of the rabbi of the Warsaw ghetto, Kolonis Shapira. Shapira first tried to tell his people that things would be okay in the ghetto. Surely God wouldn't abandon them. And then he tried to tell them that things would not get worse. And then even then he had to acknowledge what the truth of their situation was. And on one of the last Shabbatot before the ghetto was liquidated, Shapira told them that perhaps God's miracle would not come to them by being rescued from the ghetto. Perhaps God's miracle, he said, would come through time. That perhaps the end, he wrote, is only the beginning. That perhaps our sense of sequence is a lie. And this was the lesson that would find Clara. You see, 20 years later, she was visiting Israel with her husband and she was walking down Dizengov Street in Tel Aviv when a person taps her on the shoulder. Clara, yes, I've been looking for you for 20 years. But I don't know you, she says. But I know you, the woman tells her. I was there on the train when your father opened his eyes. And she said, I have a message for you from him. Your father, after you jumped out, started calling out for you. Clarish, Clarish. And I told him that you would jump from the train and you were gone. And then your near dead father said in a moment of extraordinary lucidity, if you are ever to meet my daughter again, please tell her that I am the happiest father And I am glad she jumped. Please make sure you tell her. To this day, Clara has no idea who that woman was. She thinks she may have been Dutch, but has no memory of ever meeting her before or ever seeing her in the train. And yet there she was, a messenger carrying a message, 20 years through time from her dead father, and Clara would never see this woman again. And I wonder, what if she hadn't gone for a walk in Diesengolf in that moment? What if she had stopped in front of a store and turned her back to the street? What if she had made a left instead of a right or a right instead of a left? But what if those questions are all inherently wrong? What if life isn't like a sentence in some book with a beginning and an end? Because we know that there are moments when the frozen water that contains all of time thaws and we are given a glimpse into the eternity of things. It is a reminder of the comings and goings of this world are not total and they're not complete. The truth of this brushes up against us when you have moments of deja vu, when messages reach out to us from the past or from the future and it tells us what the bookends of your story really are. I used to think that the beginning was the beginning of our story, but now I'm not so sure that I believe in beginnings and endings anymore. Because time and memory are strange things. It doesn't work like we think it does. Because we who are so bound by time, by its order, are unable, or perhaps blind, to see the truth of how time really works. That there are no ends, just as there are no beginnings. To those who have loved, we know that the wall that separates between then and now is a stubborn illusion. It is Yizker that reminds us of this truth because their death is not a death. (coughs) Their life is alive. They are not gone. And we are forever with them as they will forever be with us. Gamar Chathimat